Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambender here, and we are back for another episode from our Atrial Fibrillation series, which is a comprehensive multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from a variety of programs led by co-chairs Dr. Kelly Arps, Cardiology Fellow at Duke University, and Colin Blumenthal, Cardiology Fellow at University of Pennsylvania. This series is supported by an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb and the Pfizer Alliance. Of course, all cardio content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. We have collaborated with VCU to provide free CME for the episode. See the episode page for the link to claim CME and relevant disclosures. And with that, let's get nerdy. Hi, everyone. This is Kelly Arps, co-chair of the Atrial Fibrillation Series. Today, we are going to discuss situational assessment of stroke and bleeding risk with the incredible Dr. Hafiza Khan. And a shameless plug for past episodes, if you are interested in learning more about epidemiology and health inequities, diagnosis and detection, or initial assessment of stroke and bleeding risk in atrial fibrillation, we recommend that you check out our prior CardioNerds episodes, which are numbers 208, 215, and 224, where we discuss these high-yield atrial fibrillation topics. Today, I'm joined by CardioNerds founder and chief of nerdiness, Dan. Oh, what a title. What a title. Yes, Dan Amateur here. And I second, definitely check out those episodes. They are amazing episodes on atrial fibrillation. And being part of this recording is just so much fun. These episodes are so high yield and so impactful. So I have the pleasure of introducing our fit lead for the episode, Dr. Stephanie Fuentes. She went to medical school at University of Texas Medical Branch, followed by Internal Medicine Residency, Cardiology Fellowship, and now Electrophysiology Fellowship at Houston Methodist. Welcome to the AFib series, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm super happy to be here. It is my pleasure now to introduce Dr. Happy Khan. Dr. Khan graduated from UCLA School of Medicine as a member of the AOA Honor Society before going on to complete internal medicine residency at UCSF, where she served as a chief resident. She then completed cardiology and electrophysiology fellowships at Bergen and Women's Hospital where she also obtained a master's in medical science from Harvard, MIT. Currently, she is a cardiac electrophysiologist at the Baylor Scott and White Health in Texas, with a special interest in arrhythmias in women. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am honored to be here, and I'm excited for our discussion. We're happy to have you. It is now my pleasure to also introduce our very special guest, fellow in training, Dr. Ingrid Sharp. She graduated medical school from the University of Missouri at Kansas City, then went on to internal medicine training at Cleveland Clinic. She's currently a second-year star cardiology fellowship at Baylor Scott and White Health, was hoping to pursue a career in electrophysiology. I had the pleasure to meet Ingrid in one of the Texas ACC chapter meetings. Since then, she's developed a phenomenal pilot study hoping to improve psychosocial support for sudden cardiac death survivors. And she works on a daily basis with Dr. Khan, so we thought it would be a perfect fit to have Ingrid join us in this episode. Welcome, Ingrid. Thank you, Stephanie. Very excited to be here with everyone and, as always, excited to hear the wisdom that Dr. Khan has to share with us. So let's dive into a few cases from the CardioNerds EP Clinic that highlight and situational assessments of 
stroke, and bleeding risk. First is Mr. Chad Hask, who is a 72-year-old man with hypertension, recently diagnosed heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction and persistent atrial fibrillation, who was referred to her clinic for management of his AFib. To set the stage, during annual checkup, his pulse was noted to be irregular with subsequent EKG, consistent with atrial fibrillation with ventricular rate of 88 beats per minute. He was referred to general cardiology clinic and an echocardiogram was notable for a new cardiomyopathy with an LBEF of 45 to 49%. He was started on anticoagulation with eloquent 5 milligrams twice a day. He underwent selective coronary angiogram, which revealed no significant flow-limiting lesions. One month later, he was seen in our EP clinic where he had no overt symptoms and was tolerated anticoagulation well. However, on further questioning, he noted decreased exercise tolerance which he had previously attributed to age and deconditioning with COVID pandemic. He had a resting heart rate of about 110 beats per minute. Labs, including thyroid function tests, were all within normal limits. Given his cardiomyopathy and his symptoms, we decided to first pursue cardioversion. Dr. Khan, could you please walk us through your thought process for selecting patients for pre-cardioversion left atrial appendage thrombus evaluation? Does just to ask score or the amount of time a patient was in that before starting a devolution impact this decision? Okay, so I think this is an important case. And it's important, first of all, to classify his atrial fibrillation. So he has persistent AFib of unknown duration. It's been a year since he had his last EKG. So we don't know the onset of his AFib. So I would classify this as persistent AFib of unknown duration. If his last EKG was possibly a year ago, it might be longstanding persistent. And his cardiomyopathy is probably very clearly tachycardia mediated because he has a heart rate of about 110. So this is someone that it's important that we restore sinus rhythm because he's developing a tachycardia mediated cardiomyopathy. Now, I mean, we don't know about his medications. Hopefully, he's been started on a beta blocker, and we know that he was started on anticoagulation, but GDMT always has a role. So a beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, ARV, or ARNI are very important in this situation as well. Wow, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Khan. It seems there's so much nuance and information that goes into what really seems like it should be a straightforward question. Switching gears a little bit, in those situations where we need to definitively rule out a left atrial appendage thrombus, how would we approach which imaging modality to choose? TEE versus some kind of cross-sectional imaging like CTA heart or cardiac MRI? Are there specifics that we need to know so that we're getting the most out of our imaging? So first of all, I would step back just a little bit and go to the 2014 ACIP guidelines that were given a focus update in 2019. So our options are he's been started on a Pixaban. So we have ACIP here that's clearly greater than 48 hours in duration. Before we anticoagulate, we have to do one of two things. Either we have to wait for three consecutive weeks on the Pixaban, or we have to do an imaging modality to rule out a left atrial thrombus. And right now, you know, TEE is the gold standard. Now, he just had a cardiac catheterization, so he was exposed to a little bit of radiation as well as contrast. So I think that TEE would be the way to go unless we want to wait three weeks more. But 
He's already been in AFib for possibly up to a year. So I do think that being timely is of the essence. Now, the TE gives us more than just if there's left atrial thrombus. There's a lot of data to be had from that. Left atrial size, flow velocity through the left atrial appendage, the degree of mitral regurgitation. So TE is the gold standard. And those are our options. Either wait three weeks or proceed ahead with transesophageal echocardiogram, which would be, I think, what I would suggest. Thank you. It's a great reminder to us that even if we're ordering a study for one particular reason, that by you looking in detail at these studies, we really can get a lot more information about our patients from the imaging studies that we're ordering. You know, I know that in our practice, we also see that you know, on the flip side, we're ordering a CT scan or a cardiac MRI to assess the patient's anatomy prior to, say, an ablation procedure and are able to then use those studies if properly ranked in terms of contrast to see the left atrial appendage and to confirm that there's not a clot in there. Coming back to this case, the patient does undergo a cardioversion. And after cardioversion, we routinely stress the importance of a strict adherence to anticoagulation for four weeks due to the increased risk of stroke from atrial stunning that we know can occur after a cardioversion. Dr. Khan, can you briefly discuss the data or basis behind this recommendation and whether that's affected at all by the mechanism we use to cardiovert the patient? specifically whether the patient had spontaneous cardioversion, chemical cardioversion with antiarrhythmic drugs or an electrical cardioversion? Yeah, so a few things. It doesn't matter how we achieve sinus rhythm, whether that's through a drug, whether that's spontaneous, or whether that's through an electrical shock or an ablation. Restoration of sinus rhythm in someone like this who's been in AFib for an unknown duration, who has the CHADS2 VAS score 4, always requires anticoagulation for a minimum of four weeks, and in this gentleman, indefinitely. So the mechanism by which we achieve sinus rhythm is irrelevant. So chemical versus electrical versus ablation. So that's number one. And the reason for that is that atrial fibrillation is a process by which thrombogenicity occurs. So stasis of blood flow, left atrial stunning, those are all things that occur independent of the P wave on an EKG. So it's wonderful to achieve electrical sinus rhythm, but we need to understand that mechanical contraction of the left atrium and restoration of normal left atrial flows and left atrial appendage velocities may not occur at the moment the P wave is seen on the EKG. So the term left atrial stunning was coined now probably over 20 years ago to take into account the fact that if someone's been in AFib for a long period of time or unknown period of time, the left atrium is going to take longer to mechanically contract and to have better flow velocities through the appendage. That period of time may be as long as four weeks, but maybe as short as 72 hours in someone who's been in AFib not quite as long as this gentleman. So it's important to understand that the P wave is nice to see on an EKG but there can be a delayed left atrial contraction and then a clot could occur. So I think the highest risk is in the first 72 hours. But in this person, the risk would definitely be highest in the first one month. And he should be on an acoagulation indefinitely given his chats to VAS score. The beauty of electrophysiology is that the EKG 
has to tie in to symptoms, which has to tie in to left atrial imaging, which has to tie in to left atrial velocities, which has to tie in to LV flow. So electrophysiology and this case encompasses the entirety of left atrial and left ventricular mechanics. Thank you so much for highlighting that very important distinction of electromechanical dissociation and the importance of tying in not just an EKG, but also the hemodynamics and the importance of imaging. Now, let's move on to the next case. We now have Ms. Bridget Holt, who is a 66-year-old lady with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, diabetes, TIA, and hypertension who comes for a preoperative visit prior to a planned cholecystectomy. She was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation about 10 years ago with episodes that have been self-limiting and have not required ED or hospital visits or cardioversion. She had a TIA 11 years ago and neuroimaging at the time and her follow-up have been grossly unremarkable. She has been adherent to anticoagulation since her diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and is currently on a peak seven. Dr. Khan, how should we approach perioperative anticoagulation bridging versus holding anticoagulation in patients in atrial fibrillation without other indications for anticoagulation? How do we risk stratify such patients? Well, I think that the presence of direct oral anticoagulants has made our lives so much easier because very few patients now require bridging because we have agents that have a quick onset and quick offset. So... I would strongly recommend that everybody download the ACC anticoagulation management app. It goes through a number of scenarios in terms of automating the process for our office staff, for our APPs, in terms of chads to vast score, has blood score, the choice of anticoagulant, the dose of the anticoagulant. And very importantly, buried in that app is something called managing periprocedural anticoagulation or bridging. And so it's both for Android and for the iPhone and web-based. And let's go through that app using this patient's data. So we know that she's got a pretty high CHADS2 VAS score of six, I believe. And so if we enter that in the app and the fact that she's using a Pixivare, the second step is how high risk is the procedure that she's undergoing? So the app has a drop-down menu, and it lets you choose from a, a different variety of procedures, ranging from endoscopy to neurologic procedures. I couldn't find cholecystectomy in there, but I would say that the bleeding risk of an elective lap coli is low to intermediate. So we know that her chats 2 vas score is high. The procedure itself has a low to intermediate risk. Then we have to assess what is her bleeding risk? And we're not given a lot of data here. Is she on aspirin? Is she on anything else that thins her blood supplements? Number two is we need to know her renal function because that ties into the half-life of a Pixivan. So assuming that she weighs 160 pounds, she's got a creatinine of one, she's never had any bleeding, she's not on aspirin, that would give her a creatinine clearance of between 60 and 70. And the app then tells you that it is recommended that she stop a Pixaban. And the recommendation would be 48 hours if she has intermediate renal function of, let's say, 60 to 70. It would be 24 hours only if she had a creatinine clearance of over 70. So 
cessation of anticoagulation 24 to 48 hours, depending on her renal function, would be appropriate. Now, the app then takes you through, when should you restart the anticoagulation? So it's really detailed. Assuming that the next day that the surgeon has hemostasis, that she's able to take oral pills, which I think most patients actually go home after a lab coli, the app would suggest that she should resume her apixaban 24 hours later. Now, obviously, that's a discussion to be held in conjunction with the general surgeon, and that's what collaboration is about. But many of our patients have all sorts of procedures, and after being in practice for over 20 years, my nurses, my nurse practitioners are getting all sorts of clearance letters for dental procedures, EGD, colonoscopy. So this app is really a beautiful way to incorporate best practices and to make it guideline-based rather than just sort of situational. It also allows for you to snip and enter that the recommendation into your EMR, for example, our EMR, which is EPIC. It automates the process because once you're in practice, you may not be in the office all the time. And this is a way to standardize and streamline the process with ACC guidelines with very specific patient data unique to gender, creatinine clearance, and other medications. Well, thank you so much for just that masterclass and practically applying the data that we have right at our fingertips. I know that's definitely going to be a tool that I share with people on our team. And I do think, you know, coming back to our comment on the bridge trial, that it's an interesting topic looking at the way that a trial should be interpreted in the modern era with the change in both patient demographics and in the actual therapies that we're using for patients. And it's a reminder for us to really look at those things and determine if a trial is generalizable to our population. As people probably remember, the bridge trial didn't actually find a meaningful difference between bridging and withholding anticoagulation with regards to the incidence of thromboembolism, but it did show an increased risk of bleeding. And, you know, interestingly, those patients with a really high chance mass score accounted for a really small percentage, 3% of the study population, and the majority of patients were on Coumadin. Dr. Khan, Based on the more modern data, as well as the guidelines in that app, are there any particularly high-risk features or particularly high-chance NAS scores which would make you more likely to consider a heparin bridge for your patients? And secondly, what about those rare patients who are on warfarin these days? Yeah, and so the bridge study, as you know, was relatively small. It was only about 1,800 or so patients. And as you mentioned, that patient characteristics matter. About 75% of those patients were male, 90% were white. And in those days, they used the CHAD score, not the CHADs too vast. So the average CHAD score was two. So the anticoagulation that they used was Fragment or Daltepirate. So that's important to take in mind when generalizing these findings. What their idea of a high CHAD score was what would be CHADS2 VAS of six or seven or greater. So just remember that study was 2015. But I think it's pretty clear that if someone has had a stroke or embolic event within the last 12 weeks, reevaluate their need for an elective procedure. The highest risk after an embolic event or stroke is in that the first 90 days. So they would really need to have a discussion as to why they would need a lap coli. 
Number two is if they have a mechanical valve or if they have moderate to severe mitral stenosis, that's not a chance to vast situation. So in general, we do tend to overestimate the risk of clotting and underestimate the risk of bleeding and individualizing things for our patient is the best and collaborating verbally with our surgical colleagues is important because these days I think a lot of nuances can be missed through digital communication or my chart messages. That's perfect. Really good discussion, Dr. Khan. Our last patient is Mr. Tom Buzz, who is an 82-year-old man, past med history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, admitted with a fever and productive cough, later found to have pneumonia. On the second hospital day, he had atrial fibrillation with RVR, or rapid ventricular rate, managed with zoltiazem for rate control and heparin drip for stroke prophylaxis. Transthoracic echo showed a moderately enlarged left atrial size, preserved LV function, no hemodynamically significant valvulopathy. Three days later, he spontaneously converts to normal sinus rhythm and remains in normal sinus rhythm until discharge, which is when cardiology was consulted for discharge recommendations with regards to anticoagulation. Dr. Khan, how do you think we should approach anticoagulation for triggered AFib in cases like this in patients with infection or pneumonia, not just in the inpatient setting, but also later on follow-up in the outpatient setting? What is your threshold for starting anticoagulation in a patient with a possible reversible trigger? And is there any follow-up monitoring that you can do to allow you to stop the anticoagulation? This case probably has played out for most electrophysiologists innumerable times over this COVID pandemic. So a couple of thoughts here. When I explain this to my patients, there's a trigger, but there also needs to be a combustible substrate. So the homily I tell my patients are, in order to have a fire, you need something that's combustible like wood, but you need life's matches to be thrown at the wood. So you need a heart that's vulnerable, that's the substrate, and you need a trigger. What makes this man's heart vulnerable? Well, it's the classic, right? 82 years old, high blood pressure, diabetes, and left atrial enlargement. So that's the substrate. The pneumonia was the match that lighted the fire. So even though the trigger could be removed and he spontaneously converted, that combustible substrate, the left atrium that's not normal, remains. And life is full of triggers, isn't it? That's the beauty of electrophysiology. The beat of the heart is impacted by everything. Stress, sleep, sadness, you know, despair, alcohol. So in this situation, it was a pneumonia, but it could be anything. When you're 82 years old, everything is a something. And life's matches are unexpected. So this is a person with a chance to score four. And although this time the trigger was a pneumonia, what would the trigger be next time? So he's walking around with a substrate. This is a person that would require, in my opinion, lifelong anticoagulation because everything's a something when you're 82 and life's matches are unexpected. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Khan. And that gives so much perspective, especially since the combustibility is almost like a moving target. You know, people's heart continue to remodel and a needed trigger may actually be less of a trigger for next time as well. So this is really interesting. And I just love that idea of the trigger and the substrate. 
You know, if there's a clear, treatable, and reversible cause, then you could have hypothesized to treat the precipitant. But as you point out, these patients are at risk for current atrial fibrillation. So now, what about a slightly different situation? Would this approach change for a triggered atrial fibrillation event after cardiac surgery, who in another situation, this patient wouldn't have another indication for anticoagulation? Are there other special groups that you would consider their atrial fibrillation to be truly triggered and therefore not require long-term anticoagulation like this? Substrate of truly triggered AFib is getting smaller and smaller and probably is now restricted to, you know, people with hyperthyroidism because severe thyrotoxicosis can trigger even a normal heart. So I think that unfortunately with the obesity pandemic and with high blood pressure and diabetes, so many people are walking around with a substrate just waiting for that match to be thrown. Now, in terms of post-operative AFib, I'm assuming that we're discussing here after bypass surgery because after valve surgery, that's something totally different. So I think post-op bypass AFib is in a niche by itself, similar to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or amyloid. Those are situations that are outside of the CHADS to vascular per se. But the fact that someone needs bypass surgery, they've got to have vascular disease, which also means then they probably have the risk factors, right? High blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, sleep apnea. So I think that the guidelines are that in the first 48 hours after bypass surgery, there's a lot of hemodynamic variation. There can be pericarditis. People are in pain. I think that AFib that happens in the early short 48 hours postoperative may be different than AFib that happens day number five after the bypass surgery. And those are things that we need to collaborate with our cardiac surgery team. But irrespective, AFib is a marker for bad outcomes in patients who are having coronary artery bypass graft surgery. Whether it requires lifelong anticoagulation, I think depends on risk factors. It depends on collaboration with the cardiac surgeon. But also, I think this is an evolving area, and we're going to have a study soon that hopefully answers this. It's ongoing called the PACES study, which are randomizing patients who've had bypass surgery to anticoagulation or not for post-op AFib. So right now, I think that the data is evolving. But if someone has AFib day number four, five, six, and their chance to VAS score is high, I would err on the side of anticoagulation as long as surgical colleagues are okay with that. But post-op AFib in a bypass patient may be a niche group, just the way hypertrophic cardiomyopathy AFib or amyloid AFib is. Those are some really good points. And I wanted to ask you to expand a little bit. You had mentioned that maybe there's a difference between valve surgery and bypass surgery. Do you think there may be like kind of a mechanism or incidence behind like AFib being more frequent with one or the other postoperatively? Oh, for sure. I think that valve surgery, for sure, anything that increases left atrial pressure predisposes someone to AFib. So whether that's volume overload or pressure overload of the left atrium through an aortic pathology or mitral pathology, left atrial stretch triggers AFib. So valvular surgery especially is outside of the CHADS-2 VASC score. Nowadays, many surgeons anticoagulate even in bioprosthetic valves, at least in the short term. I think the nuances here are what is the substrate? What are the comorbidities? What is their hazard blood score and operative risk? 
Are they on aspirin or other antiplatelet agents? And the shared decision-making here is not just the patient and the physician, but it's the entire heart team. That's great. Wow, this has really been a good discussion with some fantastic take-home points. These are situations that come up almost daily in the hospital. How many times have I been on service that we've gotten a patient with pneumonia and now triggered atrial fibrillation? There's a lot more nuance than I think I previously realized. Dr. Khan, we have one final question, and that is, what makes your heart flutter about electrophysiology? Oh, I love electrophysiology. I have been an electrophysiologist now for 22 years, and I got interested in AP as a fourth-year med student in 1992. So the beat of the heart is God's miracle. We are electrophysiologists, so everything impacts the heartbeat. Sadness, distress, the loss of a loved one, pneumonia, too much alcohol, not enough sleep. So we're not interventional ablationists. We're not interventional device implanters. We're electrophysiologists because everything encompasses the beat of the heart, and we are the guardians of the most important vital sign, the heartbeat. So I love it as much now as I did when I met my mentor, Dr. Stevenson, in 1992. Thanks so much for outlining your thoughts there. This whole discussion is making me think back to your prior comment about looking at a new episode of atrial fibrillation based on both triggers and substrates and the fact that a major cardiac surgery like bypass surgery is a sufficient enough trigger that you may not even need significant substrate to have a patient develop atrial fibrillation. As a consultant, I also get asked to see people who develop newly detected atrial fibrillation after all sorts of surgeries. And I've had to learn that for non-cardiac surgery, this comes back to that conversation about the pneumonia that you brought up, that Yes, there may have been a trigger, but this trigger really unearths for us a substrate that's there that has the potential for future atrial fibrillation and that we should think about those patients more like patient with pneumonia as those who have chronic atrial fibrillation with a new diagnosis in the setting of a short-term trigger. Well, as someone just starting out on my journey as an electrophysiologist, it's always inspiring to hear about people who you know, still continue to have passion about the field after having a lot of experience practicing electrophysiology. And Dr. Khan, thanks so much for sharing this wisdom with us. You think some of my takeaways were some of the really practical points about how to look at the big picture for our patients, highlighting again, looking at the whole imaging study that we gather, looking at the whole patient when considering their triggers and their potential risk for another trigger and episode. And looking at the whole risk profile for patients who are undergoing surgery, not just what should we do with the anticoagulation, but what should we do with the surgery and is now the right time to do it. I also want to thank Stephanie and Ingrid for joining us and for developing this script for us today. Thank you. That was a great discussion. And a topic that we didn't touch upon today is just remember, many people think that we electrophysiologists only do procedures. But it's also very important that besides preventing strokes and managing the rate or the rhythm, that we discuss with our patients lifestyle modification and the impact of alcohol and sleep, as well as their weight on their AFib, because it truly does make a difference. An excellent note to close on. Thank you all so much for being here today.